the rapid acceleration of the church in the world has caused us, made it necessary to appoint three new general authorities. We therefore present to be sustained in the later meeting today, Brother Hugh W. Pinnock, F. Enzio Bushi, and Yoshihiko Kikuchi. My beloved brothers and sisters, it is a joy to be with you again in another general conference. Regarding our home evenings, a home evening with the family or an evening out to some place of interest with your family only partly solves the need of the home evening. Yet basically important is the teaching of the children the way of life that is vitally important. Merely going to a show or a party together or fishing is only half satisfies the real need. But to stay home and teach the children the gospel, the scriptures, and love for each other and love for their parents is most important. We have recommended that so far as possible, all the children have their own scriptures and learn to use them. Patriarchal blessings are happy situations. These are happy days, the days of the patriarchs. And it is our great hope that every person, including the older youth, will be given the opportunity of having a patriarchal blessing, which is recorded in the official records of the church. I have great confidence in the patriarchs and in their blessings. When the patriarch is a faithful Latter-day Saint and remains close to the Lord and is a student of the scriptures, the promises which he makes under his special authority and calling will be fulfilled if the recipient of the blessing is faithful and true. Of course, it is the right of every father and his duty as patriarch of his own family to give a father's blessing to his children. And it is our hope that every father will give a sacred blessing to each of his children, and especially as they are leaving home to go to school or on missions or to be married. Which blessings should then be noted in the individual's private journal. A word about these journals and records. We urge every person in the church to keep his diary or his journal from youth up all through his life. Would every family, as they now hold their home evenings, train their children from young childhood to keep a journal of the important festivities of their lives and certainly when they begin to leave home for school or missions. We're highly pleased with the response to the planting of gardens. It is health building, both for the raising of crops and the eating of them. 
It is delightful to see so many gardens all over the land, and reports come in from numerous families and individuals who have obtained much saving and pleasure in the planting of gardens. We hope this will be a permanent experience of our people, that they will raise much of what they use on their table. In addition to the gardens, we hope our people will straighten up their fences and clean the fence lines and tear down the old unused barns and outbuildings. We are grateful that numerous of our bishops have established an excellent, our excellent choirs for their services. It is splendid, and we encourage it. The Church from the beginning has been committed to the principle of the glory of God is intelligence. We therefore encourage our people to study and prepare to render service with their minds and with their hands. Some are inclined toward formal university training, and some are inclined more toward the practical vocational training. We feel that our people should receive that kind of training which is most consistent with their interests and talents, whether it be in the professions, the arts, or the vocations, whether it be university or vocational training. We applaud and encourage both. Our faith recently has been greatly strained as adults, as we have learned of the profligate stealing of some communities where millions of dollars are taken by shoplifters from our merchants. The public must eventually pay in the end. Why would any man, woman or child, steal from the friendly merchants and his own folks and neighbors? This is unbelievable. And great losses are sustained with the incredible amount of vandalism. We can hardly understand the makeup of any person who would destroy for the mere satisfaction of doing it. Certainly we could have more pride in ourselves than to wreak havoc on property. Is it possible that some of us have that little respect for ourselves? <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, we hope that we will all live frugally, as discussed in our last meeting, and within our means, and that we will pay our debts faithfully and honestly. It was the Lord who gave us the injunction, Thou shalt not steal. In many parts of the world there are people who take delight in various destructive activities. These people are sadists. Like Nero, the emperor of Rome, who is said to have burned the city of Rome to watch a big fire and then blamed it upon the Christians. He's said to have loved the circuses with all their sadistic activities. And we wonder what makes men so and why do people slash tires, break windows, beat up innocent people and set fires and throw bombs. Let the Lord answer this matter. If ye walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, I will give 
peace in the land. And ye shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will walk among you, and will be a, your God, and ye shall be my people. The growing permissiveness in modern society gravely concerns us. Certainly our Heavenly Father is distressed with the increasing inroads among his children of such insidious sins as adultery and fornication, homosexuality, lesbianism, abortions, pornography, population control, alcoholism, cruelty, expressed in wife-beating and child abuse, dishonesty, vandalism, violence and crime, generally including the sin of living together without marriage. We call upon our church members everywhere to renew their efforts to strengthen the home and to honor their parents and to build better communications between parents and child. Important as it is, <coughs> building stronger homes is not enough in the fight against rising permissiveness. We therefore urge church members as citizens to lift their voices to join others in unceasingly combating in their communities and beyond the inroads of pornography and the general flaunting of permissiveness. Let us vigorously oppose the shocking developments which encourage the old sins of Sodom and Gomorrah and which defile the human body as the temple of God. To our beloved brethren and sisters everywhere, as well as to all peoples of the world who love the Lord and desire to live in harmony with the teachings of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we say no people can remain strong and happy who condone these loose standards of morality. While we cannot tolerate sin, we exercise church discipline against those who do sin. We must help the transgressor with love and understanding to work his or her way back to full fellowship in the church. Let us help each toward the blessing of a lasting repentance, a resolute turning away from error. I have on occasion cited the need of, for many reservoirs in our lives to provide for our needs. I've said some reservoirs are to store water, some are to store food, as we do in our family welfare program. And as Joseph did in the land of Egypt during the seven years of plenty, there should also be reservoirs of knowledge to meet the future needs, reservoirs of courage to overcome the floods of fear that put uncertainty in our lives, reservoirs of physical strength to help us meet the frequent burdens of work and illness, reservoirs of goodness, reservoirs of stamina, reservoirs of faith, yes, especially reservoirs of faith, so that when the world presses in upon us, we stand firm and strong. When the temptations of the decaying, and I should add increasingly permissive and wicked world about us, draw on our energies 
sap our spiritual vitality and seek to pull us down, we need a storage of faith that can carry youth and later adults over the dull, the difficult, the terrifying moments, disappointments, disillusionments, and years of adversity. Uh, want confu confusion and frustration. And who is to build these reservoirs? Is this not the reason that God gave to every child two parents? It's those parents who sired them and bore them, who are expected by the Lord to lay foundations for their children and to build the barns and tanks and bins and reservoirs. We must be aware that one of the most powerful forces Satan urges and uses to destroy our purity of life is the deceit of the conspiring men. The Lord said, while deceitful men produce and sell alcoholic drinks the whole world over to the amount of millions of gallons and for millions in gain and profits, the truth of the Lord's words is coming home today in the terms of poverty, broken health, broken homes, broken hearts, industrial distress through loss of efficiency, lower production and absenteeism and carnage on the world's highways caused partly through the determination to exceed the speed limits on the highways. In this day of the new morality, as sex permissiveness is sometimes called, we should be made aware of the Lord's concern about immorality and the seriousness of sex sins of all kinds. We've come far in material progress in this century, but the sins of the ancients increasingly afflict the hearts of men today. Can we not learn by the experiences of others? Must we also defile our bodies, corrupt our souls, and reap destruction as have peoples and nations before us? God will not be mocked. His laws are immutable. True repentance is rewarded by forgiveness, but sin brings the sting of death. We hear more and more each day about the sins of adultery, homosexuality, lesbianism. Homosexuality is an ugly sin, but because its prevalence, the need to warn the uninitiated and the desire to help those who may already be involved with it, it must be brought into the open. It is the sin of the ages. It was present in Israel's wandering as well as after and before. It was tolerated by the Greeks. It was prevalent in decaying Rome. The ancient cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are symbols of wretched wickedness, more especially related to their perversion, as the incident of Lot's visit, visitors indicate. There is today a strong clamor to make such practices legal by passing legislation. Some would also legislate to legalize prostitution. They have legalized abortion, seeking to remove from the heinous crime the stigma of sin. We do not hesitate to tell the world 
that the cure for these evils is not in surrender. But let us emphasize that right and wrong, righteousness and sin, are not dependent upon man's interpretations, conventions, and attitudes. Social acceptance does not change the status of an act, making wrong into right. If all the people in the world were to accept homosexuality, the practice would still be deep, dark sin. As we think back upon experiences of Nineveh, Babylon, Sodom, and Gomorrah, we wonder, will history repeat itself? What of our world today? Are we forgetting in our great nations the high and lofty principles which can preserve the nations? I recall to mind the words of General Douglas MacArthur on the occasion of the Japanese surrender. Military alliance, balances of power, League of Nations, all in turn failed. We have had our last chance. If we do not now devise some greater and more equitable system, Armageddon will be at our door. The problem basically is theological and involves improvement of human character. It must be of the spirit if we are to save the flesh. Are we not inviting eventual destruction as we desecrate all things holy and sacred, even to the common and irreverent use in our daily talk of the names of deity and make his holy day, the Sabbath, a day of work, commercialism, and of pleasure-seeking? How then can we hope to escape the wrath of God and have peace and righteousness in the land? The answer came thundering down from Mount Sinai and remains the answer. We go to Sinai. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. And now in the year of our Lord, 1977, there are among us those same vices which we have seen wreck empires, and we see them becoming flagrant in all nations. Shall we, like Belshazzar, sow the wind and reap the whirlwind? Shall we permit the home to deteriorate and marriage to become a mockery? Shall we continue to curse God, hate our enemies, and defile our bodies in adulterous and sensuous practices? And when the patience of the Lord with us is exhausted, shall we stand trembling while destruction comes upon us? Or shall we wisely see the handwriting on the wall and profit by the sad experience of the past and return unto the Lord and serve him? I testified that Jesus is the Christ. This is his program. 
He is the God of this world. And I know that we can achieve our destiny and build enduring peace only upon the foundations of righteousness. And may we help us, may he help us to strive to live his laws and to achieve happiness on earth, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Some years ago, I was consulted by a woman who desired a divorce from her husband on grounds which, in my opinion, were justified. After the divorce was concluded, I did not see her again for many years. A chance meeting with her on the street was very surprising. The years of loneliness and discouragement were evident in her once beautiful face. After passing a few pleasantries, she was quick to say that life had not been rich and rewarding for her and that she was tired of facing the struggle alone. Then came a most startling disclosure, which, with her permission, I share. Said she, bad as it was, if I had to do it over again, knowing what I do now, I would not have sought the divorce. This is worse. Statistically, it is difficult to avoid a divorce because in the United States, with every 100 marriages, there are now about 50 divorces. Unless the present rate of ever-increasing divorces diminishes in the early 1980s, with every 100 marriages, there will be 70 divorces. Divorce can be justified only in the most rare of circumstances because it often tears people's lives apart and shears family happiness. Frequently, in a divorce, the parties lose much more than they gain. The traumatic experience one goes through in divorce seems little understood and not well enough appreciated, and certainly there need to be much more sympathy and understanding for those who have experienced this great tragedy and whose lives cannot be reversed. For those who are divorced, there is still much to be hoped for and expected in terms of fulfillment and happiness in life in the forgetting of self and in the rendering of service to others. Why is happiness in marriage so fragile and fleeting for so many, yet so abundant for others? Why does the resulting train of heartache and suffering have to be so long and have so many innocent people on board? What are the missing enriching ingredients in so many marriages all begun with such happiness and so many high hopes? I have long pondered these difficult questions, having spent almost a lifetime dealing with human experiences. I am somewhat familiar with the problems of unhappy marriages, divorce, and of heartbroken families. I can also speak of great happiness, for thanks to my beloved Ruth, I have found in marriage the richest fulfillment of the human existence. There are no simple, easy answers to the challenging and complex questions of happiness in marriage. There are also many supposed reasons for divorce. Among them are the serious problems of selfishness, immaturity, lack of commitment, inadequate communication, unfaithfulness, and all of the rest, which are obvious and well-known. In my experience, there is another reason... Due to broadcast commitments, we must now pause for 30 seconds for station identification. It is the lack of a constant...
also dreadfully difficult and dull. You might wonder, how can a marriage be constantly enriched? Adam, speaking of Eve, said, she is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. We build our marriage with endless friendship, confidence, integrity, and by administering and sustaining each other in our difficulties. There are a few simple, relevant questions which each person... Ladies and gentlemen, due to broadcast commitments... ...in an effort to become one flesh. They are, first, am I able to think of the interest of my marriage and partner first before I think of my own desires? Second, how deep is my commitment to my companion aside from any other interests? Third, is he or she my best friend? Fourth, do I have respect for the dignity of my partner as a person of worth and value? Five, do we quarrel over money? Money itself seems neither to make a couple happy nor the lack of it necessarily to make them unhappy. But money is often a symbol of selfishness. Sixth, is there a spiritually sanctifying bond between us? I commend to all the excellent discussion of President Kimball, Marriage and Divorce, in which he reminds us, quote, There are no combinations of powers which can destroy a marriage except the power within either or both of the spouses themselves. Marriage relationships can be enriched by better communication. One important way is to pray together. This will resolve many of the differences, if there are any, between the couple before sleep comes. I do not mean to overemphasize differences, but they are real and make things interesting. Our differences are the little pinches of salt which can make the marriage seem sweeter. We communicate a thousand ways, such as a smile, a brush of the hair, a gentle touch, and remembering each day to say, I love you, and the husband to say, you're beautiful. Some other important words to say when appropriate are, I'm sorry. Listening is excellent communication. Complete trust in each other is one of the greatest enriching factors in marriage. Nothing devastates the core of mutual trust necessary to maintain a fulfilling relationship like infidelity. There is never a justification for adultery. Despite this destructive experience, occasionally marriages are saved and families preserved. To do so requires the aggrieved party to be capable of giving unreserved love great enough to forgive and forget. It requires the errant party to want desperately to repent and actually forsake evil. Our loyalty to our eternal companion should not be merely physical but mental and spiritual as well. Since there are no harmless flirtations and no place for jealousy after marriage, it is best to avoid the very appearance of evil by shunning any questionable contact with another to whom we are not married. Virtue is the strong glue which holds it together. Said the Lord, Thou shalt love thy wife with all thy heart, and shalt cleave unto her and none else. Of all that can bless marriages, there is one special enriching ingredient which above all else can help join a man and a woman together in a very real, sacred, spiritual sense. It is the presence of the divine in marriage. Shakespeare, speaking in Henry VI, said, God, the maker of all marriages, combine your hearts in one. 
God is also the best keeper of marriages. There are many things which go into making a marriage enriching, but they seem to be of the husk. Having the companionship and enjoying the fruits of a holy and divine presence is the kernel of a great happiness in marriage. Spiritual oneness is the anchor. Slow leaks in the sanctifying dimension of marriage often causes marriages to become flat tires. Divorces are increasing because in many cases the union lacks that enrichment which comes from the sanctifying benediction which flows from the keeping of the commandments of God. It is a lack of spiritual nourishment. I learned, serving almost 20 years as bishop and stake president, that an excellent insurance against divorce is the payment of tithing. Payment of, payment of tithing seems to facilitate keeping the spiritual battery charged in order to make it through the times when the spiritual generator has been idle or not working. There is no great or majestic music which constantly produces the harmony of a great love. The most perfect music is a welding of two voices into one spiritual solo. Marriage is the way provided by God for the fulfillment of the greatest of human needs based upon mutual respect, maturity, selflessness, decency, commitment, and honesty. Happiness in marriage and parenthood can exceed a thousand times any other happiness. The soul of the marriage is greatly enriched, and the spiritual growing process is greatly strengthened when a couple become parents. Parenthood should bring the greatest of all happiness. Men grow because as fathers they must take care of their families. Women blossom because as mothers they must forget themselves. We understand best the full meaning of love when we become parents. Our home should be among the most hallowed of all earthly sanctuaries. In the enriching of marriage, the big things are the little things. It is a constant appreciation for each other and the thoughtful demonstration of gratitude. It is the encouraging and the helping of each other to grow. Marriage is a joint quest for the good, the beautiful, and the divine. The Savior said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him, and he with me. May the presence of God be found enriching and blessing all marriages and homes, especially those of his saints, as part of his eternal plan. I pray humbly in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Frequently, we sing the hymn, Come, listen to a prophet's voice, and hear the word of God. Today, we have listened to the voice of a prophet, President Spencer W. Kimball, as he has proclaimed the word of God. Humbly and prayerfully, I speak to you from the crossroads of the West. For Salt Lake City really is a crossroads, a mecca for tourists from all parts of the globe. Thousands throng to the ski slopes of Brighton and Alta each winter, and each summer our parks of Zions and Bryce host thousands more. An attraction, however, for all seasons is Temple Square in Salt Lake City, with its historic tabernacle, lofty spired temple, 
and beautiful visitor center which bids a warm welcome to all. Situated not far from here, a little bit off the beaten path, away from the crowd, is another very famous square. Here, in a quiet fashion, motivated by a Christ-like love, the elderly, the handicapped, the needy, and others serve after the manner of the Lord. I speak of Welfare Square, otherwise known as the Bishop's Storehouse. At this location and hosts of other sites throughout the world, fruits and vegetables are canned, commodities are processed, stored, and distributed. There is no sign of government dole. There is no exchange of currency, for here only the signed order of an ordained bishop is honored. Journalists are surprised and pleased with the welfare program of the Church and right glowingly of a people who take justifiable pride in caring for their own. Frequently, the visitors will ask three fundamental questions. First, how does this welfare plan operate? Second, how is it financed? And third, what prompts such devotion on the part of every worker? Over the years, it has been my pleasant opportunity to respond frequently to these questions. To the first, how does the welfare plan operate? I usually mention that back during the period of 1950 to 1955, I had the opportunity to serve as a bishop over a congregation of perhaps 1,050 members situated in the central part of Salt Lake City. In that congregation were 86 widows and upwards of 40 families who at some time or to some degree required welfare assistance. Each year, I and bishops all over the Church would compile a commodity requirement budget that the needs of our people might be met. Then these budgets were tallied and approved and specific assignments given to various units of the Church to produce that which our people needed. In one area, for example, potatoes would be produced, in another oranges, another poultry, another beef, all that the storehouses might be filled according to the word of the Lord, who said, the storehouses shall be kept by the consecrations of the Church and the widows and the orphans shall be provided for, as also the poor. In the area where I lived and served, we operated a poultry project. For the most part, it was efficiently operated, providing thousands of dozens of fresh eggs and hundreds of pounds of dressed poultry to the storehouses each year. However, there were those occasions when being city farmers on a volunteer basis brought not only blisters to the hands but frustrations to the heart. How well I remember the time that we gathered our young men at the poultry project. We were going to give it a real house cleaning. With vigor and with vim, we uprooted weeds and stacked them in large piles and then set them ablaze. And by the glow of the fire we sang songs, we roasted hot dogs, and generally complimented ourselves on a job well done. 
The project was now neat and tidy. However, there was just one disastrous problem. The noise that we had created and the fires which we had built had so disturbed the fragile and delicate population of 5,000 laying hens that they went into a sudden molt and ceased laying. <laughs> From that time forward, we tolerated a few weeds that we might produce more eggs. Actually, no one who has ever shelled peas or thinned beets or hauled hay or shoveled coal in this program has ever regretted or forgotten the experience. But labor alone has never been enough, for this program operates through faith after the way of the Lord. Actually, sharing with others that which we have is not new to this generation. We need but turn to the account found in 1 Kings in the Holy Bible and relive the experience of Elijah. You'll remember that a great and terrible drought gripped the land. Famine followed, and Elijah received from the Lord the curious instruction, Get thee to Zarephath, for I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. And when Elijah found the widow woman, he said unto her, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a cruse that I might drink, and bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thy hand. Her reply indicated her desperate plight. She explained that she was in the process of preparing for her and for her son a final and scanty meal, and then they would die. How implausible to her must have been Elijah's response when he said, Go and do as thou hast said, but make for me first a little cake and then make for thee and for thy son. For as the Lord God of Israel liveth, the barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruse of oil fail, until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. And she went and did, according to the saying of the Lord to Elijah, and she and he and her house did eat many days. And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruse of oil fail. Such has always been the faith which has undergirded the welfare program of the Lord. In response to the second question, how is this program financed? One needs but discuss the fast offering principle. It was the prophet Isaiah who described the true fast when he asked, is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, that thou takest the poor to thine house, when thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh? And then the promise, Then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thy health shall spring forth speedily. Thou shalt call, and the Lord shall answer, Here I am. And the Lord shall guide thee continually, and thou shalt be as a watered garden, even a spring of water whose waters faileth not. Guided by this principle, Latter-day Saints all over the world fast one Sunday each month and contribute the equivalent of the two meals forfeited and generally many times more 
to a sacred fast offering fund which is used to maintain the storehouses and to provide the cash needs of the poor. In the area where I lived, we followed the practice of all others of having our young boys who were deacons call at the homes of the members early on the Sabbath morning to receive their offering. One Sunday morning, the young lads assembled a bit disheveled, sleepy-eyed, mildly complaining about having to get up so early. Not a word of reproof was spoken, but later in the week, we took them on a personally escorted tour of Welfare Square. Here, firsthand, they saw a lovely crippled girl efficiently operating the telephone switchboard, older men stocking shelves, women preparing clothing for distribution, even a blind person placing labels on cans of fruit. They saw people earning their sustenance through their own labors. A penetrating silence came over those boys as they realized now that they were not simply distributing and gathering envelopes. No, they realized that they were providing food for the hungry, shelter for the homeless, and work for those who would otherwise be idle. They now understood, inasmuch as ye have done it, unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. For the third and final question, what prompts such devotion on the part of every worker I have responded, an abiding testimony in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and an overwhelming desire to love the Lord, one's God, with all one's heart, and to love one's neighbor as oneself. This love can be demonstrated by a recent experience. Situated below the freeway which girds Salt Lake City, there lives a 60-year-old single man. Due to a crippling disease of childhood, he has rarely known a day without pain and few days without loneliness. I visited my friend on one occasion and noted that he was extremely slow in answering the doorbell's ring. As I opened the door, I found that in his home, save but it be in one room, the temperature was a chilly 45 degrees. The reason? Insufficient money to heat the home. I looked around and found that the walls needed papering, the woodwork to be painted, empty cupboards to be filled. As I left my friend's home, I pondered his situation and telephoned a fine bishop who, together with his congregation, began a labor of love prompted by testimony. A month later, my friend Lou telephoned me and said, Come and see what has happened to me. I did. I had observed a miracle. The sidewalks, which had been uprooted by large and ancient poplar trees, had been replaced. Indeed, a new porch had been installed. The home had been painted and a new roof placed thereon. There was a new door with glistening hardware which bid me welcome. And within the home, I noted that the walls had been papered the woodwork had been painted, and the cupboard shelves had been filled. Lou saved till last to show me his pride and joy. There on his bed was a beautiful, 
Scotch plaid bedspread, which reminded him of his MacDonald family clan. It was a gift from the women of the Relief Society. Before leaving, I learned that the young adults came into his home every week, bringing a hot meal and sharing a family home evening. Warmth had replaced coldness. Repairs had transformed the wear of years. But more significantly, hope had dispelled despair, and now love reigned triumphant. All who participated acquired a testimony of the Lord's teaching, it is better to give than to receive. I bear my testimony that the welfare plan of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is inspired of the Lord. Indeed, He is its architect. To one and all I extend a personal invitation. Come to Salt Lake City. Visit Welfare Square. Your eyes will glow a little brighter. Your heart will beat a little faster, and life itself will acquire a new depth of meaning. I pray that this may be your experience, as it has been mine. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.